he was another one who was uh, outrageously respectful and he was curious i mean he was talking about these extraordinary things and he would uh sometimes pause and like ask me what i thought and like i don't i had nothing interesting to say like what am i going to say to les paul that that i mean that made me feel really as a as a very young musician to have someone like that ask uh what i thought even if i had nothing to say it it, it had an effect for sure mm-hmm. hi you're listening to conversations with musicians with leah roseman my guest today is the phenomenal jazz violinist mandolinist arranger and writer aaron weinstein aaron is a self-taught violinist and attended the renowned berkeley college on a four-year talent-based scholarship As a young man, he performed and recorded with many jazz legends. In this episode, we talked about some of these mentors, including Bucky and John Pizzarelli, Les Paul, and this interview is full of Aaron's stories and insights as a performer and educator. He has generously agreed to let me use two of his previously released self-produced videos so you can hear some of his playing. I first discovered Aaron in his comedy series, Linda Lavin. I encourage you to check it out, along with his other projects and albums, all linked in the description. Hi, Aaron Weinstein. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I discovered you because of your comedy series, Linda Lavin. And I, I there's so much to talk around that whole world and, and your writing and all that. But I thought it might be interesting for people who don't know you as a musician that I think you're one of the very few jazz violinists who started out not as a classical player. Um, well, per- perhaps. Um, I-, I can't speak to every other jazz violinist, but I can speak to myself. Um, and-, and that was my path. I started out in um, old-time fiddle music, um, uh, specifically Missouri-style old-time fiddle music. Um, and I would uh, I would go to rural Missouri and find the master fiddlers um, and, and learn tunes from them. Um, it helped that one of the great masters of that style named Charlie Walden um, lived a town away from me in the suburb of Chicago. So that that was my introduction. But through him, I would I would go to these places and uh, and learn that repertoire. You know, it's been so long since I've played that music that I don't feel I have any authority to to speak about it. Um, But it it was a a great ear training experience because, you know, there was no there was no music. Uh, These incredible fiddlers would basically play the, the, the section, the eight bar section, and then look at you to play it back. And then when you would screw it up, they would just play it again. Yeah. And, um, so uh, it, it did develop certain certain aspects of that, um, that, that kind of skill. Yeah. And then also, I think what's probably more unusual about you is that you had this really extensive apprenticeship with great old masters as a as a teenager. So can you tell the story about how you sent a demo to Bucky Pizzarelli and what happened with that? Yeah, um, I, I mean, at, there was a certain point when I started, um, I wouldn't even say playing jazz, but being interested in jazz, being interested in trying to learn how it all worked. Um, and I knew nothing um, about theory or really the, the nuts and bolts of how we, we play the music. Um, but I was looking for guidance and I, uh, you know, was young enough and 
um, you know, bold enough to just decide to ask my favorite living musicians for guidance. Um, so I, I um, for a, 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 a while, I would kind of write to these masters who, whose addresses I could find um, and send them a, a little demo recording of myself playing and a, a letter um, and ask uh, for anything they're willing to, to share about the music. And um, some of them responded, and uh, Bucky was, was one of those people, and he invited me to... Uh, uh, actually, his son, John Pizzarelli, who's also an extraordinary uh, guitarist, uh, called me when I was in New Jersey uh, working at a jazz workshop and said that Bucky's playing and he's waiting for you to sit in and go. Um, and I, long story short, I did. And uh, it, it was the beginning of an incredible, um, I think apprenticeship is the right word. Um, he, he, he taught me so much about what, um, what it meant to be a jazz musician. And he did it by showing me, um, you know, he, there were not lessons in any kind of a formal way. But um, I found the the lessons that have stuck with me are the ones that are not so formal. Mm. I forget which year you made that album with with John, his son. I was just listening to that actually. Mm. Um, which I have to say, I wish you'd put more of your albums on Bandcamp, Aaron, because oh well, <laughs> I object to these streaming services. <laughs> um, well, th those are those are on a, a record label that I don't run. Yeah, so, yeah, know. I know it's up to the the label, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, it might have been two thousand seven that that mm -hmm. album, John. I think. Yeah, um, th thrilling for me and, and and challenging for me. You know, as it just two instruments, uh, you you need to really well. You need to do your best always, but there's not a lot of places to hide. Yeah, and some of the arrangements, like you wrote some of that stuff out when you guys are really playing so close. You know what I mean? On that record with John? Yeah. Um. There was a little bit of arranging. Um, I, I think on on one tune, I took one of his solos and I just transcribed it and then played it as though it had been arranged. Um, after did it after the fact. Yeah. There were some some little uh, lines within tunes that we had figured out ahead of time, little harmony things. But for the most part, it was kind of an old fashioned, you know, uh, jazz record of figuring out the tunes and uh and just playing them yeah i also i bought your books your mel bay books oh, out of okay. curiosity they're uh -huh. they're really really cool but so the uh what do you call it the swinging jazz fiddle solos mm -hmm. first of all i thought you'd be amused because i i did buy it directly from mel bay and then i went back to look to see if there were backing tracks if you had put that out because i knew for the mandolin ones you'd done videos and i couldn't find anything but uh, it was funny because the website I was on, which was not Mel Bay, you know, they suggest if you bought this, you should buy this. Mm -hmm. So I thought you'd find this amusing. So they said, now that you've bought Aaron Weinstein's swinging jazz fiddle solos, we suggest you also buy, we recommend purchasing Protocol, a guide to the collegiate audition process for violin. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. I think that would, that's, a, that's a good companion. <laughs> uh huh. So this book, it's not like, they're not like lead sheets. I was confused when I was reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, um, I, I guess the the, uh, the premise of that book was um, essentially um, 
etudes, you know, solos in under the in the uh, guise of etudes, or maybe it's the other way around. Um, no, they're they're definitely not lead sheets. They're they're um, if I remember, they're all based on standard tunes um, and bonus points if you could figure out what's okay. what. But um, yeah, it was uh, they they didn't want to do any kind of an audio companion to it, and and so it remains. Um, you know, etudes, uh, that it's, it's not everything. It's something. If someone doesn't play classical music, uh, excuse me, doesn't play jazz at all, only plays classical music, it might give them a little sense of what playing jazz is. And, and that's, that's about, you know, all that it will do, but sometimes that's uh, an accessible first step. Yeah. Um, if someone's not an improviser telling them to just go improvise is, I think very scary. Mm -hmm. So that that was the whole purpose of that. It it, it was not um, it's not a toolbox of of you know licks and tricks and things like that. It's just saying like you know it's it's kind of the the what happens if you transcribe a solo. You yeah. you might not know why they played the thing they played, but it gives you a sense, uh, especially if it's a violin player, it gives you a sense of how figured violinist, Giovanni or Grappelli or whomever, um, what they did. Yeah. This first video is Aaron on both violin and mandolin playing Avalon. mandolin the chord melody thing is more involved with more theory and even as a fiddle player like I do have a mandolin but I I don't play it so um, actually it's interesting because we bought this mandolin for our older child who was playing violin and quit and I thought mandolin's really close and that'll be like a good instrument which it was it was actually cool for her and for you you got into mandolin because of the interest in jazz because of uh Don how do you pronounce his name Sternberg yeah Sternberg, um yeah there was a t around the same time that I, I was sending these little demo records to, to you know these incredible musicians. Um, I, I was looking for some kind of formal guidance, um, and I, at the time I couldn't find. Um, it, it didn't occur to me that you don't need to sit down with a violinist to learn uh, jazz on the violin. Um, one of the cool things about the music is it's not instrument specific, but I didn't know that at the time. And, and so, um, yeah, Don Sternberg, who is one of the world's great jazz mandolin players, he also lived the town away from me. So um, I thought exactly as you did, that mandolin is close to the violin. So that's, that's, I mean, at the time, at the beginning, I thought, well, that's the best I, I'm going to do. That's the best I can do. 
Um, and very quickly I realized that it's a completely different, even though it's tuned the same, it's a completely different instrument. And um, it, it's a real missed opportunity to think about it as a violin with a pick. I mean, um, and it, needless to say, opened up a massive world for me. Um, a, a huge rabbit hole. Um, mm -hmm. And when, when I'm playing that instrument, I think about it completely differently than when I'm playing violin. This next selection is Aaron on mandolin playing Give Me the Simple Life. I know you've done a lot of arrangements of like multi, like especially during the lockdown, you were arranging for multiple mandolin parts. You love arranging. So mm. do, do you think differently like with mandolin as opposed to violin because it's so much more chordal? Yeah, completely. Um, I, I When I'm playing the mandolin, I think uh, more of it, uh, more, more like a guitarist maybe. Um, I mean, when I'm playing violin, my feeling about it, uh, and these are completely at odds with each other. When I'm playing the violin, I think, oh, it's like a trumpet or it's a saxophone. It's a single line instrument. And of course, you could play double stops and triple stops. But it's, I don't know, it it, it doesn't often fit into what I'm hearing um, in terms of jazz. Um, I, I think it's beautiful when I hear it done by someone and that's part of their concept. It just doesn't really fit into mine. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, it's uh, the, the people I listen to as, uh, you know, jazz improvisers are at this point often uh, horn players and um, someone like Sweets Edison, the trumpet player, is someone who I go back to constantly. And, and I'm in awe of the simplicity of the line and how you know i mean it's it's almost a cliche but how it's just about finding those few really beautiful right notes and getting rid of all the other stuff and it's the hardest thing to do on the the violin when you don't have to breathe you could just keep that bow moving it's often at odds with what i'm trying to do in the music um so on the violin that's kind of where my head's at mm -hmm. um it's kind of resisting all of the violinistic urges, uh, so to speak. Uh, on the mandolin, um, 
So basically I'm saying, you know, I'm playing the violin and I'm not considering the instrument itself. I'm considering it as a vehicle to play jazz. And, and on the mandolin, I uh, am saying I am considering the instrument itself as a, you know, and, and using that instrument and feeling that it would be a missed opportunity to just play that single note line. Um, maybe because, you know, uh, plectrum uh, picks and guitars have found a way into jazz that's so integral to the music that um, doing all that stuff on the mandolin makes a lot of musical sense to me in a way that, um, you know, these quadruple stops or whatever on the violin, I, it, it doesn't really swing to me. Yeah. Um, so that that's really the big difference. There's I'm kind of following a guitar tradition on the mandolin. Mm -hmm. um, and on the violin, I'm dealing with a different tradition. Mm -hmm. And you've mostly recorded with string bands, like the sonority, often like guitar and bass and mandolin or violin or just, you know. Um, I, I guess I guess that's probably true. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of exceptions to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, pianos and trumpets and yeah, ones, yeah. But your like your your last album, you. Was I know that was the, the under the Chesky label. Was that their choice to have that instrumentation? It, it was. I mean, okay. they they called me with that concept. They mm -hmm. wanted uh, a violin, bass, and guitar, and they had this very kind of advanced uh, yeah. technological concept. And uh, you know, and they wanted uh, uh, songs from a certain time period, and um, they wanted us to go into the studio and not rehearse and just play. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that that's what that was. Um, it, it, it was uh, it was an assignment. You know, it was a very specific <laughs> assignment, um, and and that that's fun. I mean, it, it's fun and it's challenging to not be able to do overdubs, to stand around one microphone essentially and do something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way that so many of the records that I love listening to, the way that's the way that they were uh, made. Yeah the collegiate experience. So going to Berkeley, your first formal violin training. So what what was that like? I, I'm curious because Berkeley, it's not just even jazz, right? There's different strands. Yeah. yeah. My first, yeah, my first formal classical violin lessons were with Sandy Cott at Berkeley. Mm. And uh, she was amazing for me. Um, I, I mean, you know, up until that point and to some degree, you know, to this day, I've kind of developed certain homegrown techniques and, and just ways to get around the music. Um, and so to deal with someone who's coming from such a different place um, while respecting the music that I did play already, um, you know, I, let, fortunately less and less, but there's still this thing sometimes where, um, you know, if someone's a classical violinist, um, I mean, I've heard some comments that are maybe are less respectful than I would like, but that was not the case at all. She, it, it was a, a total respect, but it was very clear. I was there to learn how to actually play the thing. And, and it was wonderful because she would uh, tell me, you know, change the way you're holding your bow or move this finger and arch that. And I would 
sometimes say, but, but look, I like, it works for me this other way. And then she would do some kind of, you know, spiccato or some kind of technique that I couldn't do because of the way my hands were. Mm -hmm. And it was very kind of a, a maternal in a certain way. Like, you know, if you, it, you know, uh, the consequences and so forth, if you hold your hand this way, you will not be able to do this. Um, and you know, it was great. Um, it was, uh, for me, inspiring and thrilling to get to study a little bit of, of Bach with someone who has spent their life mm -hmm. doing that. Um, because it was so much uh, in those sessions, in those lessons, it was so much more than how to play the notes. It was why you might bring out something, mm -hmm. why you might bring out a phrase. It was very kind of uh, music forward and she approached it kind of from a harmonic standpoint that I could really understand in terms of you know he's outlining this chord and this was kind of a, an interesting thing for that time and mm -hmm. so consider that um, it's not just a line of notes um, and so that was it was totally thrilling. Hi just a quick break from the episode I'm an independent podcaster who does all the many jobs required to produce this series, and there are a lot of costs I bear as well. Please consider either buying me a virtual coffee as a tip, or becoming a monthly supporter starting at $3 Canadian, which is close to $2 US or 2 euros, and getting access to unique perks. The link is in the description. Now back to the episode. And how about the atmosphere with the other students? Because you were so, keeping so much to yourself, I imagine, in high school because your interest, well, because you were playing with much older players and right. the weekends, I can imagine, and so much into this one style of music. So to to go to this place where, I don't know, what did it feel like for you? Well, I, I mean, the, the style of music that I liked playing, um, that I do like playing, um, it, it wasn't popular at Berkeley. Um, there were certainly, I mean, I was surrounded by musicians, but, um, a, a lot of them were interested in, in different kinds of music or different eras of jazz. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I found people, you know, I, I found people who were interested and really if, you know, to play music, how many people do you need? Um, you know, if you find one, if you find three, if you, you, you don't need everyone. Yeah. Um, you don't need everyone to play with. You don't need everyone to like what you're playing. It's, you know, it doesn't take that much. And, uh, you know, so some of the professors were great. Uh, they were real song people, which is kind of how I, uh, saw myself. It was, I was like a songbook person. I was, yeah. uh, incredibly interested in what we call the American songbook, Gershwin Cole Porter, uh, Irving Berlin, Richard Rogers, et cetera. Um, I spent a lot of time at the Boston Public Library where they had original uh, lead, you know, sheet music. And I would transcribe it and, you know, on, on my paper because you couldn't photocopy. And uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I, it was perfectly fine. Um, but also I wasn't there at Berkeley to jam. Um, that wasn't that interesting to me. I, I was there to learn what I could learn in an academic music uh, setting. So something like uh, an, an arranging or orchestration class was, was wonderful. And mm -hmm. uh, that, that I found really, really valuable. Mm -hmm. And speaking of mentors, so sometimes on Mondays, you would go up to New York to play with Les Paul, mm -hmm. who's another one of your mentors. Yeah, I, I mean, he, he was, um, 
he was incredibly supportive mm -hmm. and, and incredibly warm uh, toward me. And, you know, he made it very clear that anytime I wanted to show up there, I, I was welcome. Um, and, you know, he was a walking, uh, you know, history of, of American music. Um, he was a part of so much of it. So uh, when I would go, I would always go early because I had learned quickly that he always ate dinner beforehand. And often he was just sitting alone in his in his dressing room eating. And he was happy to, to talk uh, about anything and answer questions or... Um, he was another one who was uh, outrageously respectful um, and he was curious. I mean, he was talking about these extraordinary things and he would uh, sometimes pause and like ask me what I thought. And like, I don't, I had nothing interesting to say. Like, what am I going to say to Les Paul? That, um, but I, I, I did find that, I mean, that made me feel really as a, as a very young musician to have someone like that ask uh what i thought even if i had nothing to say it it, it had an effect for sure mm -hmm. and when you were playing some of these gigs because you were starting what at 16 to play in these jazz clubs with pretty mm -hmm. big players yeah. so they wouldn't always have a set list if i understand they would just start playing tunes sometimes without yeah, there was them. there was rarely a set i mean the um it's it's kind of an old school uh way of, of, it's an old school part of the jazz tradition, which is basically you're expected to know every song that ever was. <laughs> um, uh, and, and it doesn't just mean like, oh yes, I've heard of, I've heard of that song. It, it's, you know, knowing the melodies and knowing the chord changes and, uh, you know, and go. I mean, that's, that's the expectation. Now, you know, the, these are people who kind of grew up as these songs were being written, so, and in some cases, so it was a little easier to keep up. Um, I'm, I'm I'm playing catch up there, um, but yeah, there's there's no there was no set list. Um, there were times when I would ask before the the gig, like, so what what are we going to start with? Or and, and sometimes they would be angry, like they would they would it was a stupid question for me to ask, like you know aren't you a musician? You'll, you'll know that that was the mentality. Um, I, I mean, I, I, the, the first, I, I, the, I remember the first time I worked with Annie Ross, the, the, the jazz singer, um, th there was no set list and I, I, I'd met her before the gig. Um, and I did ask, ask her what she wanted to play. And, and she basically said, uh, you know, I've I've heard you play and and I, I like it, and so you'll be fine. Just just go up and play, which is terrifying. It was, you know, yeah. um, I, I think I had, uh, I I think I was less scared then than I I am now. I mean, I it, it's I I I think about some of those situations, and and I don't know how I was so kind of relaxed in them because um, it it, it was terrifying, but. But but yeah, um, there there was almost never a set list. Well, maybe back then you didn't quite realize how much you didn't know, and now you have that awareness. I think that's a huge part of it, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I saw it all as a learning experience. Um, I would make note of the songs that were called that I didn't know. I mean, I would do my best with them, um, and then I would go home and learn. 
So when you're learning, or when you used to learn standards, would you try to memorize the words to help you with the melodies? Um, that came much, much later. Uh, for a long time, the idea that there even was a lyric was like, you know, I was totally indifferent to it. Because mm. what am I going to use a lyric for? I'm not singing, uh, which is so naive, um, especially uh, for... Um, a ballad, you know, to phrase the melody in any kind of, I think, intelligent way, um, you don't need to know the lyric, but it's incredibly helpful to know the lyric. Because mm -hmm. it was all kind of created together. Yeah. But that, that came much, much later. Um, my, my appreciation of lyrics came much, much, much later. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's part of the reason that, you know, for so long I resisted someone like Stephen Sondheim because I couldn't use his stuff like it wasn't third they weren't largely he doesn't write 32 bar songs um it, it so often it's about the the lyric is really it's about the emotional content of the lyric and I was just kind of well but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use the lyric and I need a 32 bar tune so you know what what use do I have for him which again is such a ridiculous thing to say. Do you, was it working with singers more later on that led you to that? Um, not even singers. It, it was uh, getting absorbed into a kind of New York theater community mm. um, where Stephen Sondheim is God. And um, when, I, when I first moved to New York, very shortly after moving to New York, I um, befriended someone named Andy Zerman, who was a casting director for shows like Cats and Miss Saigon and Dreamgirls. I, I mean, he, he was part of, at the time, kind of the, the only casting organization in New York for theater. So it was all the big shows. And he was a walking encyclopedia of theater, which I was so naive about. Um, and so, you know, when I'm like, oh, Sondheim isn't really, I don't, like he almost had a heart attack. Like, how, how could you, it's like saying Bach is no good or like Benny Goodman or, or you know, Duke Ellington. Is, I mean, it's just, uh, and it was a totally ignorant thing for me to say. And, and he sat me down and really showed me, played me things, explained to me why this is important. And he really helped me understand why everyone that talks about someone like Stephen Sondheim, what he did. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so it was, it was, it was the theater people really who, who helped me with that. And I understand you, you do quite a few shows with musical theater artists that are kind of a, a fusion, like you, you do monologues and like they tell stories. So it's not just music. Sometimes. Yeah. I've found very important to, really have an appreciation for the thing that's trying to be accomplished and not uh, go into the situation um, as as a someone trying to create it or just someone trying to evaluate it looking for something that it's not in other words if um, if a Broadway performer is doing their uh, their act so to speak like an, an evening with and it's a you know it's it there is probably more of a narrative and it is stories and songs uh you know to listen to that and say well it's not Ella Fitzgerald but it's not trying to be um I feel much the same way uh about jazz musicians about improvisers um there was a point at which it, I kind of realized that everyone 
I mean, it's so obvious, but it wasn't. Uh, everyone has an individual voice, and that means that there's going to be some things with each person that are extraordinary, but there's also probably not going to be other things as present. And to listen to someone and kind of make a checklist of what you're not hearing is, um, well, again, I think it's a missed opportunity. Um, as opposed to really kind of appreciating what it is that they are bringing. And, and I think that's across the board with, uh, you know, with, certainly with singers and singers of, of different genres. Um, and also with, with musicians. Um, I mean, with anything. If, if you go to see a, a movie and it's a drama and you come out of the movie and you say, well, that wasn't that funny. I mean, that's a stupid thing to say. It, um uh, so, so just just having an appreciation for the thing, meeting the thing where it lives, um, mm. is very helpful to me. Do you find that you're less critical as you get older? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I, I think I'm. Uh, I think. Well, cr critical. What, what What do you mean by by that? Like, well, you were just saying the way that the audience or fellow musicians will listen and listen for faults or listen for things they think aren't up to par. I think that's what I was hearing you talk about. Oh, um, no, I, I wasn't even, I wasn't really saying that. And actually, I, I think for the most part, the audience isn't there with the tally sheet. I think an audience is there to have a good time. Um, I think it's a helpful thing to keep in mind as a performer. Uh, most people are not waiting for you to fail. They want you to succeed. They, that's why they're there. Um, no, I, I was just saying, you know, if someone is a cabaret performer, for mm -hmm. instance, or someone is a Broadway performer, if, if to, um, you know, to appreciate their point of view musically, and if they are singing a standard and there's a jazz rhythm section, but maybe they're coming from a different place, you know, perhaps that's what they want to be doing. Yeah. Um, okay. th that's what I'm saying. In, in terms of being critical, I, I think I'm... I'm probably more critical now in certain ways. There are certain things that I do myself that I um, have less tolerance for. Um, the kind of, oh, I mean, the, the flashier aspects of of playing, uh, it, you know, it doesn't really do much for me. A, a really very, very smart saxophonist um, and I don't know if he would want this his name attributed to him or not, so I'll leave his name out of it. But he said, you know, the more the audience, is, the more if someone's playing solo, a jazz solo, the more the audience applauds, the less musical the solo was. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think there is truth to that. It's fine if someone wants to play a solo and their goal is to get the most applause. I think that's a, a perfectly fine objective. What's important to me is to just be clear on the objective. Um, if I'm really trying to actually improvise a melody and I do something that's all flashy and gets a lot of applause, I've failed in my objective at the moment. Hmm. Um, there are times when I'm, I'm playing and for whatever reason, I'm not terribly comfortable. Something is not right. Either the, I'm, I'm having a bad day or the rhythm section is not... Uh, it's not feeling good or there's someone in the audience who's doing something um, and I just need a little applause um, you know there's of course we all have tricks that we can do that can guarantee that essentially I don't know why it can but it just does um, 
you know, again, so maybe I'll abandon any kind of a musical, um, you know, purity to try to get some applause so I could like not have a panic attack. Um, but again, it's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fool myself into thinking they're clapping because of a great musicality. Um, you know, people like fireworks. Um, they're not a bad thing, but I, I think the clarity of it is uh, knowing what you're doing uh, is is for me for me is important. If we could just circle back to mentors for a second, I was. Um, reading about how Joe Venuti had uh, inspired you. So I was researching him and um, yeah, it came up, you know, his uh, things he did with Eddie Lang. Mm -hmm. So you know what Eddie Lang's original name was? Salvador or something? Or yeah, Salvatore uh, Massaro. Okay. And he, he ch so they met in like grade school playing violin. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's lore about it. I don't know what's yeah. true. I, I've heard that they, um, they were deciding who was going to play violin and who was going to play guitar, and they flipped a coin or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's the same thing where, where Django Reinhardt messed up in Grappelli. Um, you know, there's wonderful folk tales about it. Um, I like the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was interesting also about Venuti, just how his career took different twists and turns. And I was also reading... Oh, what is it I want to mention? Oh, yeah, Johnny Frigo, who I'd never heard of until I was researching you. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And did you know, like, because he'd done so many things in his career, that he was also a published poet? Yes, yes, <laughs> he, he was. Uh, Johnny Frigo was a fascinating uh, creative mind and, needless to say, one of the great jazz violinists and had an extraordinary career as a bassist before, yeah. you know, which makes perfect sense when when you listen to him play because he's so connected to the chord changes. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, not to say that, and you know, obviously they all are um, all the the people that we mentioned. But he, he, there's something different in in the way that he approaches it from his contemporaries. And when I would see him play, he would often do this uh, this thing where he would tell the, the rhythm section to lay out. Just he would play a chorus or two of whatever tune, and then he would just tell him to lay out, and then he would play another chorus or two without the rhythm section. Um, and then, you know, give him the cue, and there's they all come back, and it's a big thrilling moment. But when when he was playing solo, you, you knew exactly where you were in the tune. Um, I mean, his sense of harmony was so... Um, so clear mm -hmm. um and and so the i mean i feel very lucky that i got to, you know he, he was a chicago guy and i grew up in chicago and i feel lucky that I, I got to listen to him um as much as i did as early as i did mm -hmm. it might be interesting to, to find out how you got to know linda lavin and how that relationship it, it was a, a very kind of a you know, serendipitous New York thing. I was, uh, I was playing at Birdland, um, and she happened to be there. Um, she was, uh, she was in a Broadway show at the time, and I think the show ended, and she came over, and um, she approached me right away, and and was very enthusiastic, and and we started working together shortly thereafter. Um, it, it was the the weirdest thing for me about it was, um, you know, she, 
one of the first things she says, like, I want you to write, I want you to write some arrangements for me. And there was nothing that she had heard or, or seen that would indicate that I was able to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I, I, I love arranging. It's something I do a lot of. But it was a, kind of a weird thing to because it's not like it was a night of my arrangements or anything. I mean, it was very much a, a old fashioned jazz situation. Uh, lots of solos, in other words. Um, so I, you know, I, I started writing her some charts and and uh, playing with her on concerts, and uh, you know, a wonderful, wonderful friendship has developed, and as well as a, a working relationship. Mm -hmm. So you were working with her well before the pandemic. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think we started working together in maybe twenty twelve or thirteen mm -hmm. or fourteen, something like that. Um, so yeah, we had we had done a, a huge amount um, together, mostly musically, mm -hmm. um, and you know I had written some some other things that she had um, you know she she had had uh, very generously you know uh, been willing to to do a reading of or things like this. But when the pandemic hit, um, you know, just to kind of occupy myself and. Uh, keep my sanity and so forth. I, I started making little goofy videos, and and uh, very early she said, you know, I, I want you to write write something for me. And and I said, oh great, you know, do you want to play yourself or do you want to play a character? And, and she said, no, I want to play a character. I want to play your Yenta agent. Yeah. And and that that was the instruction. Um, so we we did one and and had a good time, and then we did I think another twelve. Um, very labor intensive because you know they were all these uh these phone conversations or zoom conversations but she did all of her part first so she would send me all her takes and then i would edit them together and then i would rehearse mine i mean it, it was very kind of musical in terms of rehearsal of timing but um it was a complete rhythmic exercise because she you know she was the metronome so to speak and i had to kind of interject and make it make it fit um so it, you know it, it was it was great and challenging and a lot of fun for sure and i'm assuming your actual agent is nothing like the character yvette Schloss. Uh, i i mean my, my first agent uh there there is a lot of uh yvette for sure okay. <laughs> he, he was he was an extraordinary uh his name was Irvin arthur and um he i think he was the oldest agent i think he he at the time i think he was the oldest living agent um he uh reportedly you know he put barbara streisand with marty ehrlichman and you know at the dawn of her career and he uh he represented steve allen um and i mean he go he goes so far back um and uh yeah he was a very old school um, completely optimistic, um, but very old school New York figure, um, of which there really aren't any more in the, in the way that he was. And I, I mean, I, I miss him a lot because, um, you know, he would just yell at people on the phone. He had no trouble yelling at people. And, but, you know, he, he could do this because he's yelling through a 50-year relationship he's had with mm -hmm. these people. Um, it, it's a completely different <laughs> dynamic these days um but but yeah there, there's certainly a lot of a lot of him and and uh, various other people for sure 
Okay. So did you end up with him because someone suggested he'd be a good fit or you just kind of, he said, I want to represent you or? Um, he was, uh, someone did suggest him. He was Dave Frischberg's agent at the time, uh, the great pianist and songwriter who I revered. He was Dick Gregory's agent and Erwin Corey's agent. And so, I mean, you know, it's obviously a very different generation of people, but these were all people who I, I loved. And so I was I was curious to, to talk to him uh, for no other reason than just to talk to someone who had been in that, you know, in show business for so long and in a capacity that I find so interesting. Um, but he was... Uh, yeah, he, he, he was uh, wonderful and he really cared. I mean, not all agents do. Um, he was, you know, I don't know if he was in his late 80s or early 90s at the time. Uh, I might be off on that. But he cared so much about what he did in, uh, in the same way that I, I care about what I do or that you care about what you do. And so, you know, it, it was... Uh, I, I liked I liked it. Mm -hmm. Someone I spoke with recently in Europe was saying that it's hard to have an agent because they might love your music, but they don't realize how hard it is to sell jazz to to book things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, th I think that an agent, uh, you know, is on the business side of things, and I, I, it's not just with with jazz; it's with anything. You know, if. Uh, if someone's job is to sell something, they need to be able to sell it. And I, I think there's considerations in terms of how much they want to try or how much they want to work to, uh, um, if they have a real emotional connection to it. I think that makes a big difference. But uh, it, it's absolutely right. I, I mean, um, in, in other arenas, it, it's the same story. If someone writes a script, um, you know, if it can't be sold, which is to say if someone doesn't think that there's a, a sufficient audience for it, then it's not going to be made. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, quality helps, but uh, it, it's it's certainly not, not everything. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um, I, I think if someone's wanting to or trying to or actively pursuing a career in jazz, uh, it's never going to be popular in the way that it was when Benny Goodman played Carnegie Hall. It's just not. It's an unrealistic expectation. And if that's, I, I guess it's about under uh, deciding what your priorities are. Um, if if uh, kind of Taylor Swift level popularity is what you're going for, probably playing jazz on the violin. I mean, there's flukes that can happen, but playing jazz on the violin probably will not do that. <laughs> so most gigs you play, are you playing both mandolin and violin? It varies. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's one or the other. Um, often it's both. Mm -hmm. And do you... Have you do you play guitar for fun at all, or you just no? I, I no, I can't. I can't play guitar. I mean, I I've never really tried. But the, the you know, for someone who's spent their whole life in this in the violin fretboard world, uh, you know, that guitar is so incredibly massive in in my hand. Um, even really simple chords that you know, like 
every 12 year old who picks up a guitar plays, I, I find it very challenging. Um, so I, I haven't, uh, I've studied a whole bunch of guitar players extensively in terms of how to do it on the mandolin. Yeah. But that, that's as close as I get. And do you know Hamilton de Holanda, the Brazilian? I certainly veteran? know. Him. Yes, yeah. Yeah. You haven't met him or? Mm -mm. No. When my daughter was playing mandolin, I was, you know, researching mandolin. So his, I think I found, it might've been still the days when you could go to a record store and buy records, but I found these um, records of his and I just was completely blown away. And just very serendipitously, he came to, I live in Ottawa, Canada. He was coming here for the National Day of Brazil, playing at the National Arts Center where I work. And I got to hear him live like a week later. It was just a phenomenal concert. And he plays a bandolin, which is bigger, right? It has a deeper. Have you tried a, a larger instrument in that family? No, no I, I really. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I haven't played a five-string violin. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I'm t totally occupied with with the the two things that I yeah that, that I deal with. I, I I love listening to. Um, you know, people who, who do explore that stuff. I think that's really, really cool. But um, I, I'm I'm happy working with, with the four string versions. Yeah, I was just curious about that. Mm -hmm. So in terms of your, your short films, which I love and have watched many, many times, I and I first saw them, I think it was during lockdown or one of our lockdowns, mm -hmm. you know, and of course, you know, we were everyone was teaching online and it was new for us at that time and you do this hilarious skype lesson parody you know where the you play the student saying i want jazz <laughs> right right exactly um I, I mean i i i teach a lot um and and i love it um and very few people are that you know um but but there there i think is sometimes a misconception about about jazz, about wanting jazz, what it means to, to play the kind of, um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't wait for inspiration. Uh, you learn, you learn how things, you learn the, the mechanics of it. Um, and I found, and it's, it's really helped my playing to explain something to someone else. I mean, I, I, people say that all the time, but it's, it's true the way to think about the thing um jazz improvisation in this case the, the way to think about it and the way to hear it the clarity of that um i think is everything mm -hmm. um and and i i know from the experience of, of hearing that music for a long time without really understanding what was going on it can sound like just a, a avalanche of notes and it can be very exciting to hear but intimidating if mm -hmm. if you want to actually try to do that um just like i mean if you look at certain writers some of them have more expansive vocabularies and some of them are, are very kind of um simple in in their language um it's the same thing with, with various improvisers and so I think if you don't really know how to listen to the music or what to how to think about it, and you're hearing this massive virtuosic avalanche, um, that could be really intimidating.
But I, I found if you could kind of, you know, chip away at what's really going on in the underlying structure of things and, um, you know, the kind of core questions to ask yourself as you're playing, it makes it a lot more accessible. I mean, for, for instance, it, it's occurred to me, um, and it's so, again, it's like it's so obvious, but in terms of note choice, when you're improvising, um, if you're thinking harmonically, if you're dealing with a chord structure, there's really two questions. It's, you know, you're playing upon a chord. How do you want to enter the next chord? And then what do you want to do once you're there? You know, so there's entry points, and then you have a little bit of time with the chord itself before you, you think about your next entry point. Um, it's it's intentionally oversimplified, but really that's, you could break it down into that, and suddenly there's something tangible to work with. Hmm. You know, it, it then begs the question, okay, well, what, what makes a good entry point? Um, and, you know, so now it's not just like play your feelings. It, it's, you know, there, there's, there's something a little more concrete about it. Mm-hmm. Are your, I assume you're teaching both in person and online? Um, I mean, for the mostly online at this point, mostly Zoom or, you know, some kind of platform like that. Yeah, um, which, which works fine for me because there, there's not a lot of like playing together jamming sort of thing, which, of course, is not workable, uh, I don't think at this point um, because of the, the time delay. But um, yeah, I, I have no problem. Yeah, you might consider, um, I interviewed uh, last year Diane Nalini, who's a jazz singer and ukulele mm -hmm. player, mm -hmm. and her, also a Rhodes Scholar in physics, amazing story. Anyway, her um, her husband, Adrian Cho, set up a company called Sync Space Live, and mm -hmm. so he's a jazz bass player. Anyway, we talked about it in that episode. They, it, you people are playing together online. It it gets rid of the delay enough that it's workable. Mm -hmm. So they've mostly put on a lot of jazz concerts last year with people in different cities, oh, and they have a they have some sort of teaching platform. But I'm not sure how good it is in terms of playing with people. But it mm -hmm. is a it's definitely progressing. There's ways um, people are lots of people probably are working on that problem so that you could actually play in sync with people. Yeah, I mean that 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 sounds so cool. Um... You know, in, in terms of teaching, especially if someone's doing, um, you know, a single note improvisation, if that's the thing being worked on, a lot of it is, you know, working on various little concepts to consider mm -hmm. and then kind of injecting those into the, the solo. Because um, at a certain point, it's not so much about it was wrong or it was right, but it's more about someone is kind of relying on a certain set of tools and it helps to consider that there's other tools um you know it's kind of realizing what's there and what's maybe less present and just trying to keep grabbing from from the toolbox and, and adding uh so so there's not a kind of a sameness yeah um, you know, it, it is all about variety. I mean, that's, that's part of what makes something interesting to listen to. So, you know, if someone's playing these long, these elaborate eighth note lines, what about some little rhythmic ideas? And what does that mean to play? Looking at that separately before 
putting it back into the fold. So, um, I, I mean, that's the sort of way that I go about things is, is kind of isolating a little element, working on that in a saturated way, and then trying to put that back into the fold. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, so in your short films that you made, which are, if for people who haven't seen them yet, like I would describe them as satirical, mostly mm. comedic. And your brother is a film Hollywood film editor, so he helped yeah. you with a lot of that. Yeah, no, he he did it. Yeah, he did it. <laughs> yeah, there's one you did called "What do you, What do you think about giving feedback to people and being kind?" And <laughs> right. It, it, was it really about your father and his book, or is that just a? No, no, my father's not a writer. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he was a stand-in for for anyone who's yeah. you know, a- asking. Um, I, I deal with it a lot. So I think we all do. Um, on on both sides of of the equation i mean i think i think that that uh sometimes we say we want to hear the truth and we just want to hear encouragement um and, and you know i i i i think that's fine um and i've also found that most people who ask they just want to hear nice things um there's very few, there's a, a select few people who I know who are in my life who I know when they ask they actually are asking because they are working on a, a, a thing mm-hmm. um, but you know there's there's a time and a place for it if something has already been done if someone a record for instance uh, you, you know I, I don't know I, I mean, gosh, it's it's so specific. It depends on how well you know someone. It depends on what you're really trying to do. It depends on what you think they really want. Um, I, I've had in my life, I've had certain uh, musicians, jazz musicians, actually sit down with me at certain points and tell me something that was very hard to hear. You know, various things about my playing that that they thought was not really working so well, and it was such a gift. Um, you know, they weren't mean about it, mm. but you know, you don't, there's at a certain point, you don't really know necessarily what you're doing wrong or that you are doing something wrong or not even right or wrong, but that maybe you're approaching something in a different way than you could or should, or would be interesting. And the people who have done that with me, I mean, there's this kind of unspoken rule I've found, especially with an older generation of musicians, where if you ask them, like, how was it? Or they'll say it was great. Yeah, you know, you, you just keep playing. Um, if they really care, that's when they will actually you know, take the time and the effort to tell you what you're doing wrong. Mm. Um, that takes time. I mean, that it takes enough time for them to decide that that you're worth the criticism. <laughs> um, so it, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a really wonderful thing, especially when it's coming from a place where they're telling you what they're telling you because they care about your, um, you know, you as a musician. Mm-hmm. When you when you first moved to New York after attending Berkeley, I. I think I must have heard in another interview how you're saying it wasn't as easy to get established as you thought it would have been, considering you have those connections. <laughs> I mean, you know, at this point, I don't know what established means. I don't like, I just, I don't, you know, with, I'm uh, not to sound like an old person, but like, you know, with social media and with 
kind of the career that one can have on social media, uh, you, you know, conceivably you can just totally X out any kind of um, established tradition or, you know, uh, getting the thumbs up from an older generation or any of that stuff and have a really, really, I, I think, you know, nice uh, career. And I, so I think things have changed a lot. Um, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I do think it is a thing. It's a reality. Um, but yes, I, I mean, when I came to New York, uh, because I had been spending time in New York while at Berkeley, I, I did know, I knew some musicians for sure. Um, and they all said, you know, uh, when you get to New York, give me a call. And, and I did. And many of them said, that's so great. Well, all, all the best. Um, I mean, they, you know, so I, I kind of, uh, it was a naive assumption, but I kind of thought like I, I would call these people and then I would kind of get started that way. And um, a, a few of them did did help me out. I mean, I remember when I called John Pizzarelli, uh, he he gave me the first gig that I the first paying gig that I got after moving to New York was John giving me a, a, a gig to to work work with him, um, which was great. And it was you know it's a very scary thing. You know, I don't, where do you start? Um, so it, you know to have people who do believe in you and help you out in, in tangible ways um, it, it was very helpful but yeah it, it was there was a lot less of that than I would have thought but that's only because I was, uh, I was uh, unrealistic in my in my thought hmm. and when you I know you really enjoy arranging Aaron so are you arranging for bigger ensembles like big bands or orchestra at all I have. I mean, I, I have been. I, I I wouldn't say that I do that. I have done that mm -hmm. for various projects, um, but no, not 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 at the moment. Uh, and you know, frankly, there's people who do a lot more of that than I do, and who you know, often if if someone asks me for something that I, I don't feel I can do in the way that I would feel happy with in the time that. I'm, I'm given, or at all for that matter, I'll give them numbers and names of people who can give them that. Like, you know, when I, uh, it happens less and less now, but I still get called for like classical violin work of one kind or another. And almost always I, I, I give them the names of friends who actually do that. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I mean, most of the arranging is small group stuff. Um, but sure, I, I've done I've done a little bit of that of the of the large ensembles. Yeah, I'm sure they'd be amazing, just based on your. Well, thanks. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think I did all right. Yeah. Yeah. And have you done classical gigs? I didn't. No, I, that, that's what I'm saying. I yeah. you know I I I, I practice it a little bit, um, mostly because it's beautiful music. I mean, why would you not want to play Bach? Um, it's not to say I'm going to go perform it. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't feel that I've, I've given it the, forget the way I might play it, which would be just totally like, you know, I don't know if I would want to hear that, but uh, I, I don't think I've given it the, the proper thought to have a point of view. And when you have something like that kind of music, and I feel the same way with, with jazz, 
um, something that's been around so long. If you're going to do it now, if you don't have a point of view, if you don't have some kind of a take on it that you think is different than something else, I, I have a tough time with it. Um, so it, that that's an important thing for me as a, both as, as a player, but also a listener. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's something I, when, when I hear a jazz singer play, uh, sing uh, now, like a new jazz singer, if it sounds like a really good version of Phil and Sinatra or Sarah Vaughn or Ella Fitzgerald, I, I, for me, no matter how technically gifted the person is, it's not terribly thrilling to hear because um, I could go put on the actual Sinatra record or whomever it might be. You mean because they're not, they haven't really uh, found their voice. They're just sort mm -hmm. of imitating. Yeah. Um, that, for me, that's at, at this point, I think the thing I gravitate toward the most is some kind of, some kind of originality. I don't mean you're doing something that no one's ever done before, but some kind of specificity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're all influenced, obviously, but I think there's a difference between an influence and a carbon copy. And you're really known as an interpreter of standards. Are you writing music at all? Are you writing original tunes? No, not so. I mean, I've done a little bit for various specific things, but. Mm -hmm. Um, no, I, I, where I, I scratch that itch, itch is, uh, with, with, with arranging because yeah. um, the way that I do, I mean, you could have the 32 bar standard, but you, there might be more original material in terms of solis and lines and things and interludes and, uh, than, than the song itself. So, I mean, the way that I, I write, uh, is, or arrange rather is, is compositional, mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just love, I love standards and um, it's kind of an endless well of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, there's the 12 that everyone plays and <laughs> for good reason, they're great songs. But, you know, if you look at the catalog of any of those people who compose those 12, there's, you know, just countless other equally great uh, songs to work yeah there was a one i was listening to recently oh the second the second time around and i think you labeled it on youtube a song that many old people know and some young people i've actually <laughs> never heard that one possibly yeah. um yeah it's it's a wonderful song um i mean the, the, you know we could spend all day talking about wonderful songs um i appreciate that that's not where everyone lives musically and um perfectly fine with me <laughs> so do you continue to do your writing like in terms of your is it all comedy or do you write more serious things in your um it, it's it's largely comedy sometimes there's a, a mix of things i mean um i know we're not talking about writing really but you know if if you're dealing with someone talking about a, a, a conflict or a crisis that they're in um there, there's an underlying drama to that. Uh, the way they can express it might be funny, but um, yeah, I mean, we, for, for it's a cliche, but you know, comedy and drama are really so, so related, almost the same thing. Um, 
But yeah, there, there's more expansive things uh, that that I can't really talk about right right okay, now. Okay, cool. But yeah, yeah, it's all. It's, it, I, I spend an, an enormous amount of time on it. Okay. Uh, yeah, which which makes time management really important because um, you know there's there's two instruments and there's music things and then there's also word things. Yeah. It's funny with comedy and drama, like my husband sometimes says to me, what are they building this as a comedy? We often notice they're, the promotion for a new show or movie might be the the one comedic moment in it, but actually it's very sad drama, more and more. And there's that whole genre of, what do they call it, tromedy, which I, I don't like that term, but... Oh, right, but, right. You know. Well, you know, the, the way things... I mean, this is true in music too, the way things are marketed, um, you know, that's its own that's its own thing. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Actually, you wrote one of the lines you wrote for uh, the little Linda Lavin character, Yvette Schloss, was um, people don't know what they want till you show them. Well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I thought that was great. Sometimes it's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, that, 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 that is. Uh, unfortunately, I think sometimes that that's true. Um, you know, I, in, in the same way where um, I mean, even in a little way, I've seen this, you know, where maybe you're doing a show or a series of concerts, I, I remember. Um, and just trying to get people to come to that is a struggle. And then, you know, the New York Times writes something nice about it. And suddenly, it's, you know, now everyone wants to go. Um, but that's that's the way things are. I mean, uh, there are people who don't care what someone else think, writes uh, about something uh, and they just are totally independent in their thought. But I think a lot of people are, are um, inf influenced by whether it's uh, someone on Instagram saying something or uh, someone writing in a column. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about uh, Johnny Frigo earlier in this conversation and I was reading um, a quote, he was on Johnny Carson and Carson, you probably know this quote, Carson had asked him why it took him so long to become a success as a violinist. Did you hear the story? Sure, sure. It's, it's a, uh, but you, I bet you have the quote more, more exact than I would. Well, I wrote it down, yeah. I want to take as long as I could in my life so I wouldn't have time to become a has-been. That's a really funny line. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he, he was a brilliant guy. He was a very, very funny, uh, massively intelligent person who, who had an incredibly wide range of talents and interests so that's why he, he played and he painted and he wrote poetry which he would read during his concerts and mm -hmm. um yeah um most of it was like light light verse like kind of ogden nash type type stuff and it, it was it was wonderful that's what i was kind of curious about your writing because you were um playing violet jazz violin at such a high level so young and then had this you know pretty well, you know, being signed with a, you know, a label when you were, what, 19 or something to make your first album, like an unusually meteoric rise in the jazz world, I would say, as a young person. And then, but then you've been doing it for so long. I was thinking, well, maybe it's very interesting to do, to devote yourself more to writing. You're obviously so gifted with words. There, <laughs> no, we can't. There's something in, in that where there's like an implication that, that I'm, I'm, tired of of the other and then that's no. not the, that's not the the yeah. case i i mean I, I think um i've i've remained open to possibilities and things feed each other um 
I, I like listening to writers talk about how they write. I mean, I, I find, you know, musicians are sometimes not, not the best um, at, at describing their process. Um, some are great, uh, but writers tend to be more articulate about that stuff. And there's, um, there's a huge overlap in terms of process, in terms of creative process, in terms of the frustrations and, and how to work through stuff. Um, so I, I learn a lot from, from looking at how other creative people go about their business. Um, and, you know, remaining open-minded uh, to possibilities. So, you know, so trying to write if I, if I have an opportunity to do that and realizing I enjoy that and then looking at how to do it more proficiently. And I, I mean, I, the, it's, it's a kind of learning process, not unlike learning an instrument. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it, it's the difference is, you know, when you're writing something, you can work on the sentence until you get it as right as you can. When you're improvising a line, you're doing that the, as, to the best of your abilities in real time. Um, so, you know, the, the challenge in terms of playing is just getting better and better at saying what you mean in, in that moment. Um, I mean, when occasionally, like, it's, it's kind of cool. Like sometimes I'll, people will send me CDs that they like recorded at early things I did with Bucky Pizzarelli when I was, you know, 16 or 18 or something. And, uh, I, you know, I listen back to some of that stuff and sometimes I have to really stop listening because I, I don't agree with most of what I'm doing. Um, so, I, you know, if, if I heard someone playing like that, I would have all sorts of, <laughs> all sorts of suggestions. Um, you know, there, there might, I mean, I, I'm self-taught, so I, and I, I never thought I have, you know, real proper technique, but I, I do appreciate there's a facility of some sort. Um, however, I don't know how high level the solos were at that time. Uh, for me, in terms of what I appreciate now. Mm -hmm. One thing we haven't really talked about, Aaron, is um, etiquette for younger players coming in, onto the scene. Uh -huh. <laughs> Do you have advice for young jazz players? Well, all, all I can offer is how I went about things. I, I lean very far in uh, one direction. Um, and that direction was kind of, you know, uh, reverence, <laughs> almost kind of a monarchy like reverence. Um, you know, the most that I could, the most that I felt comfortable doing uh, was letting people know I existed. And if they uh, wanted to invite me to do something, I was thrilled, of course. But the most I would, and I almost felt at times that it was overstepping to, for instance, send someone a, a demo recording. Um, but... Uh, that that's how I approach things. I mean, I, I these were these were superheroes to, to me, and um, and you know if they even chose to respond, that was so thrilling. Um, I, you know, as as someone who's no at sometimes at some points no longer the youngest person in the room, um, I, I have seen younger musicians. Uh, 
act in, in different ways. Um, and I think everyone is working from a, a, a good place for the most part. And, and I think people have different goals in mind. Um, it's very interesting. Sometimes I've seen or, or um, I've been a part of a situation when like a younger musician will want to sit in maybe. Um, and then they set up like an iPhone and their tripod and it's it seems like it's about content you know it's about like having a bit of content that they could then post and um that that's just i mean obviously when i was 16 and 17 there was no content to post because there was no place to post it but it was really about the that interaction um in that moment um, and that's the only place my head was at. Um, I wasn't thinking about, uh, or is this framed correctly? Or, you know, let me play a solo that, that my followers are really going to like. I mean, it sounds like you're a cult leader, you know, my followers. Um, you know, it, it was just, a, for, for me, it was about the opportunity to, uh, kind of be in proximity to someone who I just th think is astonishing and trying in that moment to understand a little bit more about the thing that I'm trying to do by listening to them who have done it for so many decades and are such masters of it. And so, I mean, that was my, that was my goal in doing that. Um, Again, in the same way as we spoke about with solos, where like if you're doing it to try to get applause, that's not a terrible thing. If you're doing it to try to play the most musical solo you've ever played and you don't care about applause, that's also not a terrible thing. But to have a clarity in what you're trying to do, um, I think is, is very helpful because it helps expectations. Um, it's when expectations are kind of out of whack with with uh, reality that I think things uh, you can get into some trouble. Um, in the same way with practicing, I mean, if you're working on something and the expectation is that it'll take a year before you, you see any results, and in six months you see a little progress, it's kind of thrilling. If your expectation was that in a week's time you'll have mastered whatever this thing was and you haven't, it's incredibly disappointing. You know, I, when I when I work with people in a, in a you know like a lesson a, a teaching situation, I hear the phrase a lot. Well, I should be, I should be able to do it by now, and I mean. It, it's a canned response, but I, I do say, who, who told you? Who told you this? Where, where does this timeline come from? Um, a really, really smart musician told me uh, when I wasn't in my teens, uh, he said, you know, you're, you're not going to play tomorrow the way you're going to play a year from tomorrow. And you can't, you can't fast forward that. So, um, you know, there's something very peaceful about that, actually. Um, when we listen to these masters on, on record, we're hearing an end result or we're hearing a, a point at which mm -hmm. they were. We're not hearing them practice. Um, 
I think there's a big difference. Um, it, it's it's I I love listening to early recordings of people, even when they're astonishingly good. It's almost always different than what you're hearing them play at now or later, um, and it it really shows that everyone goes somewhere. Maybe it's not a place that you you personally uh, appreciate, but you know it, things do move and progress is made, um, and, and so. You know, for all the wonders of social media, and it is like a wonderful thing, I think, and YouTube is a, an incredible resource, but there is this weird thing that I've seen where people are posting what they call a practice session. And really, it's not a practice. It's like a performance. Um, and, and I think that kind of throws a wrench into the whole um practice uh, the structure of what it means to practice when I practice or when when I talk with students about how to practice which I think is hugely important to know how to practice um, I always start by by playing like when I pick up the instrument I play something before I get into the practice of the day and I end by playing something and I do it just to kind of clarify the mind and get myself ready to go, but also because there, it's so, there is a difference. So you don't fall into that trap of kind of jamming under the guise of practice. You can play, and then it's like, okay, it's time to work, and it's not going to sound good. That's the other thing. It's like being, becoming comfortable with the idea that practicing is going to often... Uh, sound bad because you are practicing something hopefully that you can't do or that you can't do very well or that you want to do better uh, if it sounds too good maybe it's not you know maybe you're not practicing the right thing um, at a certain point hopefully it, it, it sounds acceptable but you know I, I think being comfortable sounding really terrible not feeling like you're a terrible musician because you're playing you're you're trying to learn something you don't know how to do right now and of mm -hmm. course it's going to sound bad doesn't mean you're a bad musician, though. We argue that means you're a good musician. Actually, yeah, I wanted to ask you about what I would call performance mode as opposed to practice mode. So especially as a classical musician, um, I find in my teaching, students often have trouble with performance mode because they'll be playing something and they'll just kind of repeat it. Like they didn't like what they heard. So instead mm -hmm. of going on with the flow of the music, they'll just circle back and they're not conscious of this. And it's a habit you have to help people break. And it's often comes from not performing enough and actually just practicing too much or not practicing the, the feeling of performance. But for jazzers, it's different, right? Uh, practicing and performance? Well, the, 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 the way of thinking, because you're in this flow of, I don't know, maybe not. Well, I, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're practicing. But if, if we're talking about like single line improvisation. Yeah. Um, you know, imp improvising, you, you can't, you can't, I mean, you can't truly practice improvising. The whole notion of improvising is you're improvising. Um, so you can't do that. But what you can do is you can practice the tools that you use when you improvise. Um, kind of in a general sense. So when you are on the fretboard, on the fingerboard, in a place you know the landscape, you know what your options are. I mean, I, I reference this this a lot because I think it, it makes a lot of, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, there's an old, I think it's the Jack Parr show where Jonathan Winters, the uh, great improvisational 
actor comic, you know, or Robin Williams, big influence. Um, Jack Parr gave him like, it's like a stick. And, and he said, like, what, what could you do with this? And Jonathan Winter stands up and goes through, I don't know, a dozen different characters and different, you know, he's, he's a lion tamer, he's a conductor, he's a fisherman. It's all these things, what can you do with the stick? And practicing improvising is kind of practicing possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I mean, in terms of practice, it's kind of exploring, again, it's also specific, but depending on what you're working on, exploring what you could do. And then when you're performing, you do one of those and you do your, you do your best. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a whole different thing. You can't, you can't stop during a performance and say, oh, I made a bad choice. Yeah. You know, what you're practicing is the mechanism of dealing with maybe the thing you didn't intend to do and, and, and making something out of that, uh, musically speaking. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, we, we all play notes. Was, when you're improvising, you play notes that maybe you didn't intend to play. That's not, such the, that's not such a bad thing. But then it's not getting terrified and running to like a lick that you know is going to work. But dealing with the note, and, and that's the new reality. Um, so you can practice how to deal with that. Mm. Definitely. When you're practicing violin, are you hearing the chords in your mind? You know what I mean? Like the full harmony? Um, in, in certain way, I hope, I mean, that's the hope. Um, if it's a new song, if it's a new progression, it's not so clear. Um, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not hearing the chords like as though they're being played on the piano. Um, but I'm, I'm trying, what I'm, I mean, the goal, my goal is to try to play what I am actually hearing. Yeah. As opposed to something that I know might work nicely. Mm -hmm. Um, that's always like the, um, the, the negotiation during a during a performance. Mm -hmm. um, it's tricky. I heard you uh, talk about in another interview about Les Paul that he developed um, arthritis towards the end of his life, which I have right. now, so I relate, mm -hmm. and that he couldn't. Maybe you could speak to that. What he told me, and and I I, I have mentioned this a bunch because I think it's such a kind of an inspiring um, notion. Uh, you know, he had perfect pitch and he had extraordinary facility for most of his life. And so he could play whatever he, he heard. And then yeah, he had some pretty severe arthritis. Um, it got so bad, I think, like at the end of his life, he had maybe one or one and a half fingers that he could use. And what he told to me was, you know, he had two choices. He could either continue hearing those things that he those those ideas and get frustrated because he couldn't play them or he could train himself to hear new ideas that he could play um i mean when you say it like that it sounds pretty simple but go ahead and try that i mean it's it's uh i mean of course he could do it <laughs> i mean he was so so brilliant um but I think there's something very inspiring about that. And it, it speaks completely to what, it, what I think it means to play a, a 
on a solo, mm -hmm. which is dealing exclusively with what you're given in that moment. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a challenge, but it's part of what makes it fun. I'm trying to close this off. You keep saying all these wise things. <laughs> I, I often ask people, and you can choose not to answer this question, <laughs> if, if you could have looked back on like 12-year-old Aaron and just sort of maybe given him some advice or said it's going to be okay. Like, is there other things you might have said to him? Uh, no, no. Um, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Um, I mean, what I was, if we're talking about like the age of 12, what I was interested at that point had nothing to do with what I'm interested in now. Um, I mean, I, I remember I was maybe around 12, 11 or 12. Um, and I had a choice uh, in Chicago on the same night. Uh, Bill Monroe was playing and Stefan Grappelli was playing. And I couldn't go to both. I, I could go to one. And I chose to go to Bill. I want to see Bill Monroe. Um, now, you know, what I could have told, you know, I could have said, well, but this is one of the great jazz violinists and you'll be very happy, you know, to have seen this person because he will play a fairly significant role in your musical development. You don't know that yet. I, I would have, you know, gone to see Bill Monroe. Um, so, I, I mean, I have, not, I have nothing to say to my former self. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we change and sometimes for better and sometimes differently. And uh, it's all, I think it's all fine. Yeah. I'm guessing, was that your last chance to hear Stefan? Yes, it was. Yeah. 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 I had one chance and, and I, uh, I chose not to do it. Yeah. Did, so your parents offered you this choice? Yeah. I mean, they, they were, you know, they, they were totally supportive of my interest in music. And um, I mean, I, I, I guess I did. I knew who Grappelli was. I mean, I had like a few Django Reinhardt records, but it just it wasn't an interest. You know, six months later, it would have been. But uh, not not at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for today. I really appreciate being able to talk to you. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I have featured several jazz violinists in this series, along with a diversity of musicians worldwide pursuing unique paths in music. Thanks for following this podcast. Have a great week.